From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow at Family Research Council for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement, and it is my pleasure to be with you this evening. A great lineup today. I want to remind you that you can find this in every episode of Washington Watch at TonyPerkins.com. You can also get it by downloading the Stand Firm app. Type in Stand Firm wherever you get your apps. Today on the program, Kentaji Brown Jackson is on the on Capitol Hill. It's President Biden's nomination to the Supreme Court. What should we expect from the confirmation process? What would her confirmation mean for the court? We'll talk about that today in depth. In addition, this week, we celebrate World Down Syndrome Day, an effort to highlight the gift that people with Down syndrome are to the world. And we'll talk with one father who is making a national impact on behalf of people with Down syndrome. Later in the program as well, a man is now a national champion women's swimmer. And the Babylon Bee has been kicked off of Twitter for referring to him as a man. We'll talk about that. We'll talk to the founder of the Babylon Bee about what happened a little later in the program. Stay with us. But first, the headlines for today. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is now approaching its fourth week. And signs are pointing to a stalemate as neither side is backing down. As the world's attention remains locked on Eastern Europe, the Chinese Communist Party is not only playing a behind-the-scenes role in the war, they may be gearing up for an invasion of their own, as reports are coming out on how China has fully militarized at least three of several islands it built in the disputed China Sea. South China Sea, excuse me. Is China just flexing its military muscle, or is it preparing to make a move on Taiwan? Here to talk with me about this is China expert Gordon Chang. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and The Great U.S.-China Tech War. He can be found on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Joseph. Well, it's good to have you. Now, on Friday, uh, President Biden spoke with Chinese leader Xi Jinping for nearly two hours in an effort to assess where China stands. China is always a force for peace in the world. We always stand for peace and oppose war. This is not only China's historical and cultural tradition, but also our consistent foreign policy. Therefore, we will make our judgment independently in an objective and fair manner based on the merits of the matter itself. We do not accept any external coercion or pressure and oppose any groundless accusation or suspicion against China. Gordon Chang, what's your response to that? Those are just mere words. You know, we have seen China fully back uh, Russian uh, President Vladimir Putin. And it's not just these elevated commodity purchases of oil, gas, coal. Also, China is um, removing restrictions on the importation of Russian wheat. We see China allowing its financial system to be used to uh, for Russian institutions that have been sanctioned. And uh, China's foreign ministry has put itself at the service of Russia. And the big propaganda machines of the Communist Party and the Chinese central government have been amplifying these ludicrous notions we hear from Moscow. So all in all, we can say that China is a combatant in this war on Russia's side. There are a couple components to this. 
You refer to China as a combatant on Russia's side in the conflict with Ukraine. But last week, in seemingly unrelated news, they have militarized these islands in the South China Sea. They also sent a carrier into disputed waters in the Taiwan Strait. What are we to make of this? China has been pressuring Taiwan with, for instance, these fly-throughs there of their air defense identification zone. But on February 5th, which was the second day of the Olympics, China actually flew one of its military planes over a Taiwan island. That's a violation of Taiwan's sovereign airspace. That's something that they hadn't done in four decades, which is a real indication that China's ramping up pressure. Um, as you point out, they sent one of their aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait a couple days ago. And they have continually been militarizing the South China Sea in violation of their promises to President Obama of September 15th when Xi Jinping was in the Rose Garden. How would you interpret these actions? The timing of this is certainly not accidental. Almost nothing in this space is accidental. China is very aware of what's going on globally would this reasonably be perceived as a threat that China could soon make a move on Taiwan at the same time the world is distracted by what's going on in Ukraine? Well, these military maneuvers are certainly a threat, and China intends them to be that way. And we have seen this consistently over the course, especially of the last year, where China has had these continual um, incursions into the air defense identification zone and these very hostile flybys of circumnavigation of Taiwan um, with both ships and planes. So Beijing is trying to pressure Taiwan because it realizes that at this time, at least, it can't invade. So it's trying to force Taiwan's people to submit in advance. It's not working. And as we see the heroic resistance of people in Ukraine, more and more we're seeing people in Taiwan realize that they have to resist China. And, and that's a good thing, a new attitude on the island. And tell me what that means in Taiwan. There is no invasion currently. How do the Taiwanese people resist China at this point? They are now talking about increasing conscription. Um, they're talking about spending more money on their own defense. This is really a result of a couple of things. First of all, they can see that the United States and the international community are not rushing to Ukraine's aid in the way that they think we should. And so they realize that they've got to defend themselves. Um, this is because people in Taiwan, by and large, do not see themselves as Chinese. When we look at these self-identification surveys, more than 80% view themselves as Taiwanese only, and less than 5% view themselves as Chinese only. So this is a real indication that people in Taiwan say, yeah, of course, we want good relations with Beijing, but we're not part of China. Do you think the developments in Ukraine so far and the global response to it have made it more or less likely that China would take an aggressive action against Taiwan? There are factors going both ways, Joseph, but I think on balance, um, this has really meant uh, more likely. Um, one of the important things here is that uh, there was a massive failure of deterrence. The United States, the 27 nations of the European Union and Britain have an economy that is more than 25 times the size of Russia's. But Russia went ahead and invaded anyway. And I think China saw that and realized that Biden policy was essentially feeble. The other thing is that the invasion of Ukraine has, I think, started or accelerated a period of deglobalization. 
And in a period of deglobalization, China becomes a lot less important to other countries, which means that China can't intimidate them. Um, so I think that it sees it's got a closing window of opportunity to attack the island. Gordon Chang, we greatly appreciate your time, as always, informing us of this very important part of the world and these related developments. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you so much, Joseph. I really appreciate it. Now, turning our attention back to the Ukraine and Russia, President Biden and world leaders will be engaging in a string of emergency summits in Europe this week with the intention of finalizing and unveiling a package of new measures to punish Russia, help Ukraine, and demonstrate Western unity. When asked yesterday on CBS's Face the Nation about what he expects the president to do at his meeting this week with NATO allies, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell had this to say. I think he needs to step up his game. He's generally done the right thing, but never soon enough. I mean, let's take a look at what's happened here. The Ukrainians have killed more Russians in three weeks than we lost in Afghanistan and Iraq in 20 years. I think we ought to go into this believing the Ukrainians can actually win. And the way they win is for us to get these defensive weapon systems to them as rapidly as possible. So will President Biden step up his game, as Senator McConnell suggests? Here with me to talk about this is U.S. Representative Gary Palmer, who's a member of the Energy and Commerce Committee and chairman of the House Republican Policy Committee. Representative Palmer, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you. What's your reaction to Senator McConnell's comments there that President Biden needs to step up his game? Well, I think he does. Uh, you know, when uh, President Zelensky spoke to us at the end, when he spoke in, in English, I was reminded of another speech given by the leader of a besieged nation, February 9th, 1941. Uh, Winston Churchill was speaking to Parliament. Uh, it was broadcast over the BBC, but he was really speaking to the people of the United States and to one person in particular, and that was uh, President Roosevelt. And uh, as you may recall, at the end of that speech, uh, he said, put your trust in us. Give us your faith. And the last thing he said was, give us the tools and we will finish the job. I think we need to give them the tools. Do you think there are tools that we are withholding at this point that are preventing Ukraine from mounting the defense they're capable of? Well, I know they've asked for additional S-300 surface-to-air missiles. I think they may have stepped it up now and asked for S-400 systems. Those are systems that they're well familiar with. They're the old Soviet uh, air defense systems that all of the uh, Soviet bloc countries utilized uh, and uh, so I think we ought to get those to them. They've asked for the small arms, but they've also asked for the MiG-29s and uh, that Poland has. They're not using those. And uh, I think uh, rather than us make this decision, we should let the people who are face-to-face -face with the enemy uh, tell us what they need. I don't think they need to, to come on a Zoom call, as President Zelensky did, and tell us how they're going to use them. But... Um, I'm, I'm much more confident in the people facing the enemy knowing what they need than a bureaucrat sitting behind a desk 5,000 miles away. That does make a lot of sense. 
Representative Palmer, we were just speaking with Gordon Chang about what's happening in in China and Taiwan. Uh, You made some comments earlier this week that suggests you believe that China is using Russia. What do you mean by that? Well, I I don't know that they're using Russia. I think that that Russia has become an example for them. I think that uh, China, uh, like the rest of the world, anticipated that the Russian military would roll into Ukraine and and have the whole country, at least the city, the capital city of Kiev, within just a few days. And now we're almost a month into this war. And it's very apparent that, first of all, the Ukrainian people are not giving up their country. Uh, they've had 30 years of freedom. They do not want to go back to what they had under rule by the Soviet Union. But the other thing is, is uh, how effective they have, they've been in defending their country. Obviously, they don't have the manpower or the material to go head-to-head with the Russian army, but they've made this an unbelievably costly attack. Uh, I think China is observing that. But the other thing that China is observing is how damaging uh, the sanctions have been to the Russian economy, and that's without cutting off Russian oil. Uh, You cut off uh, the sale of Russian oil on the world market, and I think the whole Russian economy collapses. So I, I don't think China wants to go through that. The other thing, though, is I think Taiwan is watching this as well. And this should also be instructive to China. Uh, I think the Taiwanese have, have enjoyed 70-plus uh, uh, years, almost 80 years of freedom. And they do not want to be ruled by China, particularly uh, uh, Xi Jinping. So I, I think if China were to try to invade Taiwan, and we, I think we should be providing uh, shipload after shipload of weapons Representative to Taiwan Palmer, right now. Unfortunately, we are at a hard break. We are up against it, but we appreciate your time today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on. We'll be. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. 
To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us. Earlier today, the Senate Judiciary Committee kicked off the confirmation hearings for President Biden's pick for the Supreme Court, Judge Kentaji Brown-Jackson. Opening remarks from Democrats were full of praise for the nominee, while Republicans promised pointed questions for the federal judge. And you'll be asked, do you support expanding the Supreme Court? I hope you'll give us an answer, because it shouldn't be hard. Either you do or you don't. Justice Ginsburg said no. She thought if you just changed the number of the court every time somebody new came in power, it would ruin the court in the eyes of the public and make it a joke over time. I agree with that. So I hope you can give us an answer to that question, because I think the court would be better off if the judges stood up for the court. Joining me now to talk about what we might expect this week based on what we know about the judge and what senators have said so far is Catherine Beck Johnson, Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies at Family Research Council. Catherine, good to see you. Good to see you too, Joseph. Thanks for having me on this evening. We are going to hear a lot about the confirmation and Judge Jackson in the coming days and weeks. What happened today and what do you expect moving forward? Today was just the opening statement. So the uh, the nominee, Judge um, KBJ, was not asked a lot of questions or any questions for that matter. She gave her opening response, but the Republican senators focused a lot on how they want to look at her track record. They want to look at her leniency in sentencing child predators. They want to look at her opinions on court packing. There have been some rumors that she supports the idea of court packing. And they also focused a lot on how Justice Kavanaugh was mistreated so much by the Democrats in the Senate during his hearing and how that they will treat her with respect and that they can expect this to be professional and about her as a judge, not her personal life, not last minute allegations. While the left very much just praised her, they focused a lot simply on the fact that she was the first African-American nominee and there wasn't a whole lot of substance behind her record as a judge, but it was more so about her physical attributes. So moving forward, we'll see tomorrow and Wednesday to be a lot of questioning of her and we will see how she answers. 
Now, Catherine, for most Americans, you know, we are not familiar with the bench of federal judges or potential nominees to the Supreme Court. So whoever is nominated for most people is a stranger. But what have we learned about Judge Jackson since her nomination several weeks ago? We've learned that Judge Jackson is very much a favorite of the far left. When she was an attorney, she did an amicus brief, which was a brief supporting NARAL, the abortion industry, saying that pro-lifers should not be able to stand outside abortion clinics, should not have their free speech respected, and they should not be able to protest abortion outside of clinics, which is just really a radical view. We also learned as a judge, she was very much results oriented. She would shield um, Clinton's aide from having to answer why he sent emails on his personal account. She would knock down every single Trump act that was before her. She very much seems to be a results oriented judge stemming from her action as a lawyer advocating for NARAL. And let's take a moment and clarify why it's a problem to be a results-oriented judge, because you want judges on the bench who are, as the slogan says, justice is blind, who don't look at the at the parties involved in the dispute, but they look at the law and they try to appear, apply it fairly. Because if you have a judge who's primarily interested in the outcome and who it benefits or who it doesn't benefit, uh, that's not the rule of law. That's the rule of people. And so we do want justices who are able to look at situations and not evaluate who's involved and do I like them or not, but simply how does the law apply to the situation, even if I may not like the result or not. Now, you've mentioned some of the things that have been learned about her. You also referred to some of the comments today on the Hill that people expect this to be professional. They're going to be respectful. They're going to be kind. In light of what we know, how much opposition do you expect to see for Judge Jackson? I think the biggest opposition is really right now coming from Senator Hawley's office. He was the one that broke the news that there was a lot of digging into her sentencing, and she showed a lot of leniency in sentencing child offenders, those that had 40 to 1,000 files of child porn, those that tried to cross state lines. Those That was very concerning, and that's something that Senator Hawley is very much going to be attacking her on. The other Senators have also said they would like answers on that. That's something that she needs to be prepared to be answered on. So that's really going to be a really large concern. And then you're going to have to have senators like Manchin, who are vulnerable Democrats, have to answer to their constituents of, yes, I voted yes on somebody who is lenient on child offenders. So it's something that we definitely will be following that line of questioning, especially. And we know that Historically, the Senate has given deference to the nomination of the sitting president. That's been particularly true, I should say, in recent years, have been more true of Republicans for Democratic president than it has been for Democratic senators of Republican presidents. But given that deference and given the concerns that Senator Hawley's office has raised and things like leniency for sex offenders is something the public might take issue with, how are the senators going to balance those competing interests? That's right. I think it's very, it's the jobs of this Republican senators to oppose her on judicial philosophy. They're going after her 
judicial opinions as a district judge, of her sentencing of child sex offenders. So they're not going to personally be attacking Judge Jackson. They're not going to make this about her as a person, her character, any actions in her personal life. You very much must stick to this being a judge's record as what she did as a judge. And that's how you keep it professional and cordial, but also say at the end of the day, I don't think that you interpret the law neutrally, even though she has claimed in her opening statements that which what she will do. It's very clear by her track record that she will not and does not. And so you simply say, based on your judicial philosophy, is why we will be voting no. Catherine, we've got about 30 seconds left. The Senate is tied 50-50. Is there any chance Judge Jackson is not confirmed in your opinion? I would say there would have to be something explosive that happens. I think it's very much expected that she will be confirmed. She does have a lot of support from the other side, but you never know what will happen. And we'll, we'll definitely be following this over the next few days. Catherine Big Johnson, thank you so much for your time, as always. Thanks. Have a great evening. Coming up, it's World Down Syndrome Day. And the state of West Virginia last week gave advocates for life another reason to celebrate that. We're going to talk about that after the break, and we're going to talk about it with the father of a Down Syndrome daughter who has been advocating on behalf of the Down Syndrome for her entire life. Stay with us for that fun conversation. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. My name is Joseph Macholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at FRC. And it is my pleasure to be with you today. And today, March 21st, is World Down Syndrome Day. And there is much to celebrate, including 
last week's signing of SB 468, which is West Virginia's Unborn Child with Down Syndrome Protection and Education Act. Now, present at the signing of the bill last Monday was 18-year-old Chloe Kondrick, who had successfully lobbied at the age of 11 for Chloe's Law in Pennsylvania to ensure that parents who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome are made aware of the resources available to help their child thrive. For weeks, Chloe had been meeting with members of the West Virginia State Congress to advocate for Senate Bill 468, which is slated to go into effect on July 1st. Joining me now to talk about the importance of today and the importance of bills like SB 468 is Chloe's father, Kurt Kondrick. Kurt, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you very much. Good evening, and I appreciate you all having us on here, and we love everything you do there. Well, that is kind of you, and we are grateful to you and everything that you labor for, and it's our privilege to be able to partner with you in this small way. I know that your daughter, Chloe, is a big reason that you're talking to us today and a big part of the advocacy work that you've done. How did Chloe come to be an advocate for life? Sure. My daughter, Chloe, was born in 2003, and during the pregnancy, my wife and I were um, Pressure to have prenatal testing because we were told we were high risk for Down syndrome. My wife was 40 at the time. I was a city police officer at the time also. We denied the prenatal testing, and um, Chloe was born, and we found out postnatally that she had Down syndrome. And after that, the reception was kind of cold at the hospital. There was um, things in there that, you know, just the way that doctors and stuff t- spoke to us, that, um, that, that was not positive, that was not uplifting. So shortly after Chloe was born, I learned that, 90% of children who 90% of children receive a prenatal Down syndrome diagnosis are targeted and terminated and eliminated. So that's just, it was the Holy Spirit that moved through me. I just, it's a, it's a prenatal genocide. And I said, I had to do something about it. So I left my career as a police officer and began advocating and defending and protecting these precious children and making people aware of their abilities, not their disability and making aware what was happening to them in the womb and asking the question, who's next as prenatal testing advances? I think that term you use, prenatal genocide, is apt and it's appropriate, and it brings up all sorts of other horrible images, but I think it is appropriate based on what we're talking about when 90% of children diagnosed with Down syndrome are terminated before they have the chance to be born. Why is World Down Syndrome Day such an important day for you? Sure. World Down Syndrome Day is on 321 because it recognizes that people with Down syndrome have <clears throat> three of the 21st chromosome. And which I, I wrote an article once that Adam and Eve had Down syndrome until the devil stole the extra chromosome. Because people with Down syndrome do have very unique characteristics. And being a former police officer for 20 years, it's awesome for me to watch my daughter as she has grown. And she doesn't have evil knowledge. She doesn't care what party you belong to. She doesn't care where you live. She'll love you because you're a human being. She's a reflection of of God's unconditional love and purity. And <clears throat> that's what drives me even harder to defend these, these kids. So this being World Down Syndrome Day, and it's interesting, the theme for World Down Syndrome Day this year is inclusion. And I've, you know, I've written articles, you can't have inclusion unless a child's able to be born. And, you know, identifying, targeting, eliminating children with Down syndrome because they don't meet the cultural mandate for perfection is actually the ultimate extreme form of exclusion. Uh, prejudice, discrimination, bigotry, profiling, all the things that, you know, people talk about um, that we don't need in our society. Well, this this encompasses all that, what's happening to these kids prenatal with Down syndrome. So 
you know, I call myself a advocate. I, you know, I'm on a mission. I'm going to keep working until we end this, this prenatal eugenic movement against these beautiful people and ensure that, you know, that we embrace endoting race down syndrome. And Chloe and I, we've been to the White House. We met the president, the vice president, last administration, her picture hung in the White House. We spoke to the United Nations. We speak all over the country. Like I said, we just were blessed to be down in West Virginia and Governor Justice down there. And Chloe was there when he signed the law. He gave her one of his pens and copied the law and, it was just a, it was a beautiful, absolutely priceless occasion. And I, 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 I'll, I'll tell you, I had tears in my eyes because it's just, it's amazing Kurt, how God has used us. Yeah. Tell us very quickly what that bill does. It's called the Unborn Child with Down Syndrome Protection and Education Act. So not only is it going to protect them from being identified, target, eliminated prenatal because they're diagnosed, it's also going to pro- provide education supports and resources to families in the great state of West Virginia for people that do have the um, a diagnosis of Down syndrome so that they can have a good life. It's not just a pro-birth law, it's a pro-life law. It's going to ensure that these families are connected to the things that they need to have a good life for their child and to have so their child can thrive in the community and their family in the schools and in all types of settings. Kurt, in about a minute, what are the most common misconceptions you face when you're talking to people about uh, talking to people about those with Down syndrome. They stereotype them in there. They lump them in. Oh, I know, I know people like that. I know kids like that. <clears throat> my daughter, Chloe, is not Down syndrome. My daughter, Chloe, is Chloe. My daughter, Chloe, has her unique uh, likes, dislikes. She likes to play volleyball. She loves to hit golf balls. She loves the beach. She loves to play with her dog. But she's, she's a person. She's a human being. And she, she was reading at age three. She reads better than most adults that I know. And um, she, she loved to watch uh, college. She loved the tournament right now. She did a bracket. You know, so she, she's a unique human being, as you are, as I am, who happens to have this extra chromosome, but who happens to have a really a wonderful and amazing life. Kurt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your courage and the example that you have set for Chloe and all of us. And on this World Down Syndrome Day, we thank you so much for your time. We thank you for everything you do there. And Chloe and I actually spoke at your convention last fall. Pray both stands. She still talks about it. We met Tony Perkins. So we love the work you do. We pray for you. We support everything you are. God bless you. Thank you. Coming up, the Babylon Bee has been banned from Twitter. We'll talk about why when we. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. 
Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Twitter locked the account of the Babylon Bee for naming transgender Biden administration official Rachel Levine their man of the year. As it turns out, the right-leaning parody site was biologically correct, but not politically correct. And big tech wants us to follow the left, not just follow the science. Well, here with me to talk about this is Joel Berry. He's the managing editor for the Babylon Bee. Joel, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you. You guys are often providing us with all sorts of amusement and some important cultural lessons. What was your reaction when Twitter told you that your account had been locked for naming Rachel Levine your man of the year? (laughs) Um, Well, you know, things like this happen to us uh, from time to time, whether it's uh, big tech, you know, Facebook, Twitter coming after us in different ways, a fact check. And uh, usually on those days, you know that it's going to be a bit of a crazy day. So um, last night, uh, Editor-in-Chief Kyle Mann texted me and said, hey, buddy, guess what? We're locked out of Twitter. And um, I just could see in my head everything that was going to be coming in the next uh, couple of days. It's always a whirlwind of, of activity after that, trying to figure out what's going on, trying to respond to Twitter, uh, replying to, to media requests and things like that. So it's it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Now, they have told you that they will unlock their your account on if you agree to delete the tweet. What's your response to that? <laughs> well, yeah, we, um, you know, we thought about it. Um, you know, ultimately, we decided we're not going to take it down. Um, you know, it, this is we're, we've kind of reached the point in our culture where um, it, it, it's almost it almost feels like a tipping point where. These, these little things, these basic fundamental truths, these realities that we're being uh, asked to deny um, and pretend aren't there, um, you know, 
sooner or later you have to stand up and and decide to say no. And and in this case, you know, uh, our owner Seth Dillon, um, he decided, you know, it's worth it if we have to lose our Twitter account, if we lose a lot of traffic and revenue to our site, so be it. The truth is worth it, and uh, and so that's the stand that we're taking. Joe, you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. A lot of people are on Twitter. I think we we would agree that uh, very quickly we could go on Twitter right now and find something worse than saying Rachel Levine is the man of the year. Why do you think this is the line that Twitter has drawn and said, if you cross it, it's the death penalty? <laughs> That's a good question, because, you know, you're, you're exactly right. You know, the, the Taliban is allowed on Twitter. Uh, President Putin of Russia is still on Twitter. You know, you can call for violence. Uh, in all sorts of different ways, you can say all, all sorts of horrible things, um, spread hate in, in all kinds of different ways, as long as it's directed in, in one direction and it's in support of a certain ideology. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just I can't I can't I don't know. I, I don't know if I can get into the particulars of why, but that's just the fight that we're in right now. It's, um, you know, this 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 postmodern movement, um, this this movement that has decided to. Um, throw out 2,000 years of, of Western tradition, throw out uh, the morality of, of Scripture and our Judeo, Judeo-Christian nation, um, has decided to make a morality from scratch. And um, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. It doesn't stand up to reason and logic. And so the only way to, to enforce that worldview and protect that worldview is through force and censorship. And so that's, that's what they're doing. It's it's crept into the universities. It's crept into the corporations and, and obviously big tech and, and uh, big tech has kind of become the, the, the bludgeon for enforcing that, that worldview. Joel, you guys at the Babylon Bee are in the humor business and you make important points and you try to make serious points, but you try to do so in a way that will make people chuckle or sometimes, you know, recoil. But have you, do you feel like the left has lost its sense of humor generally? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and in a way I can empathize with them. You know, I came from the religious right. I came from the evangelical world, you know, the very fundamentalist wing of the evangelical world, if you will. And so I can relate to people who have a hard time laughing at themselves, like we Christians have been guilty of many times in the past. People who are are worried about their worldview coming under any kind of scrutiny or questioning. So in a sense, I it, I feel this weird empathy and kinship for people who have lost their sense of humor, and and it's the left has kind of become the fundamentalists now, whereas the right have kind of become the the punks and the you know the troublemakers and and the comedians now, yeah. um, just because we're willing to speak the truth, the the offensive truth, um, and uh, it's it's that role reversal has been kind of a funny thing to watch, and it's provided a lot of material for us at the B as well. I think that's true. I think you and I may have similar backgrounds, and it's funny that we are now the countercultural ones, but I think that is undeniably the case. But, Joel, I want to ask you on a slightly different topic. It's related here, but when you refer to Rachel Levine as your man of the year, a lot of Christians, and I know you hear this, would say, well, that's just mean, because this is a a man who's identifying as a woman. This is lacks compassion. It's not Christ-like. What's your response to that charge? Mm. Yeah, I have seen that. Um, and it's, you know, it's a valid question to ask. Um, I think that 
as Christians, we have to be able to speak the truth in love. That's a command given to us in scripture. We have to be winsome. We have to be kind, even to the people that we're, we disagree with. Um, a, a couple things. I, I think the first thing, um, our, our real target in this article, uh, this headline was USA Today, not necessarily Rachel Levine. So we were, we were satirizing what USA had today had done a couple days earlier in naming Rachel Levine as the woman of the year or one of the women of the year. And so we, we were kind of satirizing that. If you read the article, um, we, we, we allude to the fact that, you know, Rachel Levine is a precious, infinitely valuable child of, you know, creation of God who is loved by God. And we, we hope that, that Rachel, uh, you know, becomes everything who God meant her to be kind of with a wink, wink, knowing, you know, knowing what we mean by that. Um, you know, and, and so we, our intention is never to, to be cruel or unkind or target a specific person. We're targeting ideology. We're targeting bad ideas. We're targeting, um, idolatry. And so, um, you know, sometimes it, it, uh, it's more playful. Sometimes it's a little more savage and, and, uh, cuts deeper to the bone. Um, but, uh, we always do try to keep that in front of us is that we're not trying to be cruel to people. We're not trying to, you know, to, to borrow the, the phrase the left likes to throw around, punch down. We're not trying to do that. Right. Um, but we, we aren't going to shy away from speaking the truth either. And we are thankful for that. It is a difficult time. It's a difficult line to walk, but we are called to cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And I do also think it's uh, it's biblical to be joyful in the process. But Joel Berry, we thank you so much. We thank you and all of your friends at Babylon B for the uh, joy you bring to our lives each and every day. And thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Now, I want to continue this conversation, but to a related story about the transgender movement in America. A large group of parents from across five Ivy League schools has put together a statement about the experiences of their children competing against transgender swimmer Leah Thomas, who won the 500-yard freestyle in the Collegiate National Championships on Thursday night. Now, they say that Thomas who has lived and competed primarily as a man, has an unfair advantage. But to say so invites backlash, which is why they remained anonymous, to protect their kids. Well, joining me now to talk about the controversy is someone who has been out there making waves about this, Beth Steltzer. She's the founder of Save Women's Sports, who was at the NCAA Division I Championship for Women's Swimming last week, to speak up for girls and women everywhere. Beth, welcome back to the show. Thank you for the opportunity and for continuing to shine a light on this absurdity. Well, we are glad to have you. First, I just want to hear about your experience at the Women's champ- Swimming Championships. You were there. You had a demonstration outside the event. What happened? Yeah, we were inside. We were outside. The first day when Leah swam in preliminaries, We held a press conference with people from across the world, varying backgrounds, and we had overwhelming positive support. And 
by the end of the competition, the three days, there were parents walking out, cheering, save women's sports with us, chanting along. It was amazing. And I know that the work we did helped create a safer platform to, for them to speak out because, as you know, this is a very toxic environment that they're facing cancel culture, risking losing their jobs. It's absolutely ridiculous. And we all need to be empowered to step up. And as, as Joel said before, just say no. Well, Beth, the situation that we all witnessed last week with a man women winning the national championship in women's swimming might be the most prominent example. It's not the first example of a man winning awards in women's sports, but it might be the one that's gotten the most attention nationally. As you watch that happen, what was your reaction? And what was the reaction of those that you were around who were in the building when it happened? It was it was so crushing to actually see it in person. It was just devastating. And you could just tell the energy went down in the room. There weren't many boos or anything. It's just that absence of clapping. And the absence of people speaking up is what really gets to me. Uh, so I went into the hallway to try and collect myself, maybe go outside and get some fresh air. And that's when I ran into a mom of one of the swimmers. And she was just sobbing. And we just embraced and... And that's what it's like. It, people are so afraid and it's such an emotional thing and it shouldn't have to be that way. It's really simple. There are males, there are females. We should really hold the line to protect women when it comes to this because there's no asterisk now to tell people that that champion was a male, not a female. You talk about your interaction with the mother after the event. There, a letter has now been signed by the parents of many of these swimmers, done so anonymously, but they are speaking out about this issue. Do you think that represents something of a turning point? Most definitely. Uh, we went down there to make some change, and it happened. We're seeing that letter. We're going to know that more female swimmers are going to be speaking up, whether that's anonymously or not. It, it's it's change and it's taking the blinders off. One of the biggest hurdles that I face in this issue is knowledge. People just aren't aware. And it's these personal stories that are going to help wake people up and realize what's really going on here. And, and ultimately, it's an erasure of women when we're inserting this gender identity, these feelings, instead of biology reality into our lives. Yeah. Beth, the justification that the NCAA gives for allowing Leah Thomas to swim in these women's events has to do essentially with testosterone or estrogen levels. And they have, it seems, and one of the arguments that the parents made in the letter is that they have reduced the totality of womanhood to estrogen levels. What's your reaction to that? It's absolutely ridiculous to think that simply manipulating hormone levels can change your biological sex. Women are not a hormone level. We're not an identity to be worn. We're born. We are a reality. And, and I think it's a slap in the face to women. And these testosterone levels, not only is it ridiculous, but they're at way higher levels than what average women's testosterone levels should be. So it's still just ridiculous guidelines. They need to step up. Everyone needs to stop, start stepping up and saying no to males competing in female sports. Beth, you've been involved in this issue for several years now. The, the issue isn't that old, but you're one of the pioneers on this issue, for better or for worse, and we do thank you for your leadership on that. 
But what have you have you seen anything change in terms of the the public's reaction, the public's understanding, the public's response to this issue in the time that you've been involved with it? Most definitely. And and as you're well aware, we've been getting legislation across and this is now a mainstream issue. Our actions were covered on all U.S. national media, and this issue just has been ignored in the past. So I see it as a success in itself. And yeah, things are really turning around. And to that point, what do you think needs to happen, whether it's culturally, whether it's politically, in order for us to reestablish the boundary that we all were operating under for millennia, literally, where there's a clear difference between men and women, and we're going to honor those differences uh, when it comes to sports? It's up for, to everyone to simply say no. This isn't a personal attack on anyone. We're not trying to say that trans athletes should be banned in sports by any means. We're trying to run a pro-woman movement, and that means competing on the basis of sex, a reality that we can't change. Now, Beth, very quickly, is this personally for you, is this an issue of fairness, or is there more to it that leads you to lead in the way that you have? There is absolutely more to it, and that's when I bring up the erasure of women. It's just not the the record books that were being destroyed from. It's absolutely every sex-based space that women rely on to feel safe. Prisons, rape crisis shelters, hospital wards, in our school systems, in the bathrooms, in the locker rooms, women should have the right to say no to a male body in their space. Beth Stelter, in about 20 seconds, if people want to help your effort, how can they get in touch with you? Savewomensports.com. You can find ways to donate, join our action team. We'd love to hear from you. Everybody, it's time to step up and say no. Beth Stelzer, you are courageous, and we are grateful for your courage as well as your time today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Friends, we do hope that you will go to Save Women's Sports and be part of that effort, but also continue to pray, get engaged. Most of all, be courageous because fear is what's gotten us here. Courage is what gets us out, which is why this day and every day, we encourage you to fear God and nothing else. We'll see you tomorrow here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 